Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. If you are a person who is interested in being engaged in how we shape this country going forward, I think the law and law school is an excellent tool. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is Faiza Patel, a 1991 graduate of NYU Law and the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. I want to just say, I'm really glad there are people like you on the planet doing the kind of work that you're doing. So I'm very pleased to have you today, um, Faiza, here to talk about, among other topics, um, your international career and working in national security. Great. I'm really happy to be here. You know, this is oriented around women. You know the background of this. Um, so we always start off the conversation with first a look at what your experience was at law, in law school. Well, that's really asking me to dig back into the deep recesses of my <laughs> memory. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I had a, a very positive experience at NYU Law School, um, in part because of the emphasis that the law school had even back then in the dark ages on public service. Um, and I think that really impacted me as I started to become a lawyer uh, to think about the different ways in which you could be a lawyer, that there were many paths to it. And, you know, being a woman in that time, I think, was probably a little bit more difficult than it is now in the sense that some of the issues that we talk about now very openly um, are much, were much less discussed, right? So, uh, you know, obviously the conversation around sexual harassment that has broken out into the open uh, in recent months is something Exploded. That, exploded, exactly. <laughs> uh, is something that I think about and I think back to, you know, uh, the time I was in law school and, and certainly there were instances in which people talked about, you know, which professor were thought to be hostile to women or, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit less sensitive to women, etc. But it was always done kind of behind closed doors and there was very little kind of open discussion of these kinds of issues. So when I look back at it, I, I see what a difference it is now uh, compared to then. So you feel like there was kind of a sisterhood of um, covert warnings about some of the bad behavior? know if it was sort of a, even a sisterhood. It's just that there were stories of certain professors making mm -hmm. you know, pretty outrageous remarks. And it wasn't just women, but also men, to their credit, who, you know, talked about this. And we sort of gossiped about this on our own. But I don't think it would have occurred to any of us to kind of make a formal complaint about it or try and do anything about it. That wasn't really in our frame of reference mm -hmm. the way I think it almost certainly would be today. I think that generally there's this movement of seizing our power. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I, I think you've seen, you know, a lot of uh, student activism. Uh, I mean, there's always been student activism, but it feels like, you know, there, that there's a much more of a sense that, that we are part of the community and we can shape the community as students and not that the community is only shaped from above. Mm-hmm. The hegemony at work. Um, there's a confluence, I think, of being of color and also of being a woman. What was that experience like for you? You know, and I've said this before, I don't know that I was particularly conscious of myself as being of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up in Pakistan, so I'm kind of 
brown, but I could be from pretty much anywhere. Sure. So um, I don't know that I necessarily identified as uh, as much as a woman of color as, say, sort of African-American women did. Um, and certainly I don't think that I was conscious of myself as being Muslim American and therefore otherized because of that, because this was pre-9-11. And so, you know, being Muslim or being from Pakistan didn't give you an automatic terrorism label or have people asking about, well, what do you think of ISIS, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I I didn't have to deal with any of those kinds of issues uh, when I was in law school. Did you later? Um, I mean, certainly in my work I have, right? So, uh, you know, I graduated from NYU Law School and then I was in D.C. for three years, and then I moved to Europe with my husband, um, and I was there really all through um, 2007, which is when we moved back to the mm. U.S. So I missed 9-11 in that sense, and I missed the the change in the country that took place um, and only saw it, you know, from coming and going here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I moved back here in 2007, uh, I realized what a fundamental change Uh, had come about in terms of how people perceived me and what they wanted to talk to me about. Uh, And that was very much along the lines of, you know, having these sort of very charged conversations sometimes uh, about Islam and and what I thought about terrorism, et cetera. And I remember one time it was quite extraordinary. I was um, testifying at one of Peter King's radical Islam hearings. I forget what it was called. and in essence, you know, you had sort of members of the House sort of asking me, you know, well, well, you know, did I want the terrorists to win because I was wow. pushing back against, you know, programs to surveil Muslims. I mean, so people do make those connections, but I think a lot of times it's also people think, okay, you know, maybe somebody who's f- from a country that, you know, has pr- produced many terrorists, you have to be sort of uh, truthful about that, mm-hmm. uh, has a particular insight. So I, I don't necessarily take offense usually, but I find it a little odd. <laughs> yeah, that's a I mean, heavy... it would be like me asking you, well, what do you think of the KKK? Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that's got, you got more uh, reason to ask that than I probably have to ask you about Islam, given uh, my heritage in this country. But so do, would you define it as wariness, curiosity, I mean, I think, you know, it depends, right? I right. Mean, different people have different motives. The, there has been a change in our culture since 9-11. There's also been a change in the law. There's been a dramatic change in the law. And in fact, you know, when I moved back to the U.S., that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get into national security was because I was just shocked. I mean, I could have left here, you know, as a relatively young lawyer, uh, still naive enough to believe in in many of the principles that were uh, taught to me in law school, and really sort of thinking of this country as being an exemplar in terms of its commitment to due process, Mm -hmm. uh, and at least to certain fundamental wrongs. I mean, everybody recognizes that, you know, the U.S. legal system has never been perfect. It's always excluded or mistreated some group of people or the other. But I think I I sort of started out my career as a lawyer with with sort of a more of a confidence in the bedrock principles. And I felt when I came back that those bedrock principles had, in fact, been eroded. and this was, you know, the end of the Bush presidency when he was kind of pulling back from the kind of the worst of his excesses and the beginning of the Obama presidency uh, where he was 
trying to claim the mantle of sort of restoring the rule of law. So it was actually a relatively optimistic a good time. good time to be. Yeah. Um, but even then, I mean, I felt that just looking at the, the law, that some of the sort of fundamental things that I had thought about the U.S. had really been turned on their head. I mean, take torture, for example, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that the United States, which was one of the the big supporters and, and drafters and negotiators of the Convention Against Torture, would be in the position of parsing words about whether or not, you know, a particular technique crossed the line into torture was, for me, just inconceivable. We, we ended up, as a country, with national security at the forefront of our thinking, legally and otherwise. Well, and, and in every area, right? I exactly. mean, if national security sort of is the only concern and the overriding concern, it really distorts your relationships with the entire world, particularly the Muslim world, right? If you say, for example, if you take sort of the value of, say, democracy and national security, right? I mean, you're, you've already lost that game if you say your national security is your overriding priority because you will always, as a country, sort of put greater emphasis on stability and, you know, having somebody who's in control of the country, et cetera, et cetera, at least in the short term, even though you know that in the long term that stability is going to be an illusion and what's going to come afterwards is probably going to be worse for your national security. But you're not thinking that way. You're thinking about, you know, this year, next year. And when that's the main thrust, then there's an erosion of civil rights and we start to lose in other areas. National security is famously um, not quite an all-boys club, but it's very male. How has that been for you? That's certainly true. Um, If you think about national security as being sort of the government, right? Like Mm -hmm. so, but you have to understand that when you work in national security, there's lots of different ways that you can work in national security. You can be in the military, you can be, you know, in national security agency, you can be in the FBI, you can be in the local police department, or you can be in the advocacy community. Um, And certainly there are, you know, a decent number of of fairly high profile women uh, on the government side. uh, And there's a lot of uh, women working on national security issues on the NGO side, like at the Brennan Center or my counterparts at at the ACLU or other groups are very often women. One of the things that I think um, is generally really cool about you is you have this air of equanimity. And (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that in the face of really dramatic and potentially traumatic challenges that we face, Um, And that you must be facing even personally some offensive things even, especially on some of the the way our current um, presidential administration stands on um, Muslim Americans, for instance. Mm -hmm. You seem to be ferociously calm. (laughs) Well, I think it really helps to have a thick skin, frankly. That's good. Um, And I have to say, in part, I've always had a thick skin, so there's that. And I think it's a very good thing to develop. Um, But I also think, you know, one of the things that gives me a a lot of strength and a lot of comfort in these times is that I know the people who are standing with me. Mm -hmm. I know the community 
of groups and individuals with whom I've been working over the best part of a decade uh, to push back against stereotypes about Muslim Americans, against policies that harm them, against national security policies that are rooted in prejudice. I mean, this stuff didn't start with Trump. I mean, we've exactly. had this for a long time. So it's, it's just become more overt and more extreme since Trump. But I know this community of people. I know how well we work together. I know how smart we all are. And I've got to believe that at the end of the day, we're going to win this battle because we're right. That inspires me. So thank you. Thank you for staying in that game. Um, before you ever came to the Brennan Center, you worked at The Hague. You were at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Big name stuff. When you were the well, law student, or kind of looping back to this law student world, did you imagine an international life for yourself? You know, the funny thing is, I actually kind of resisted it. Really? Yeah, because I was a foreign student, and I was in the JD program, which was relatively unusual back then, people always assumed that I wanted to do some sort of international stuff. Uh, and I did do a fair amount of international mm -hmm. law when I was in law school as well, but I'm kind of a contrarian, so I pushed <laughs> back against it, and I was like, no, I want to do corporate law, because that's the furthest thing. Uh, so... Um, Actually, I, I didn't think I would pursue uh, an international career. I sort of started out um, at a law firm, in part because I wanted to pay off my law school loans. There's yeah, always that, always that helps. great <laughs> impetus. Uh, and I was at Devois in Plimpton for three years. And I have to say, it was a great time in the sense that not only did I get to pay off my loans, but it was actually really good, rigorous training for a young lawyer. Um, so I didn't imagine it, but I did move to The Hague. Um, and because partly because I thought that the the ICTY, the Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, which had just been set up, was like the coolest thing I'd ever heard of, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so you know anybody who studies international law in the least has sort of heard about Nuremberg and the trials, and you know one of the sort of seminal moments in international legal history. And to be able to be a part of that, sort of the revival of that, was was such an exciting opportunity that uh, I uh, sort of moved uh, many stones to make that happen. That would give me goosebumps, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I was already living in The Hague, and I had an opportunity to work on another thing, which I think was really historic and, and kind of amazing, which was uh, this organization had just been set up by treaty, which was the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And this was a, a kind of a UN-type organization. And the treaty was extraordinary because, you know, if you look at arms control, right, so if you look at whether you're looking at nuclear or chemical or biological, it was a unique treaty because it actually banned the whole category of weapons. So mm -hmm. compared to, for example, the nuclear treaty, right? The nuclear treaty doesn't ban nuclear weapons. It allows five countries explicitly to have them. It just doesn't want anyone else to have them. But this treaty was unusual because it was you know, focused on banning an entire class of weapons Highly and also specific. making sure that they weren't being manufactured covertly. And these are, you know, all weapons are bad. People die and get injured by all weapons. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to kind of grade between them. But chemical weapons are like a truly horrific weapon to use. And they cause so much pain. And they're so terrorizing for civilian populations that I think I was felt very grateful to have the opportunity to work on sort of getting rid of at least this class of weapons. And you had that passion kind of propelled you into doing that kind of work. Yeah, yeah. So I was able to work at that organization. I worked there for, I don't know, six, seven years. Um, and that was a, a really interesting area to be working on. And also, 
you know, the other thing that was really interesting about it was sort of the kind of insight it gave me into the diplomatic world and how the UN works and how these different states have mm -hmm. their positions and, you know, how you can almost anticipate, you know, what the US or Russia is going to say in relation to a particular question because you know their position and everything else. So it was really an interesting um, experience for me. The best part of it was, so I had this great South African boss when I started, right? And the at way the Hague. We, in the Hague, yeah, mm -hmm. at, at the at the the chemical weapons place, and we would be sitting up at a dais, and you'd have all the delegations um, sitting in front of you, and they would all take the floor turn by turn, and they would say things, and sometimes they'd say things that were dubious, right? <laughs> and so I, the, <laughs> the first few times, I always had this like really stupid expression on my face, like I would like really grimace when somebody said something that I thought was obviously dumb or obviously wrong. So the best lesson I learned in that was, you know how to keep a poker face. That was oh. my first lesson in diplomacy is a poker face. Well, that's what I was going to actually ask you how your time spent in Europe um, informed your legal career once you returned to the States. And it sounds like that's at least one of the lessons that you brought back. Well, I think, you know, the, the bigger lesson, which I think I've probably forgotten, is that, you know, the U.S. is such an insular place, right? Like, we think the world revolves around us and we just are it very... It doesn't? I know, right? <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> I mean, we're very focused on what's going on here, yeah. and we see it only in the context of what's going on here for the most part, whereas when you live in Europe, you're looking at the U.S. from a bit of a distance, and I think you have a, a greater appreciation, actually both for the power of the U.S. and how much it impacts the rest of the world, mm -hmm. because you see how much the rest of the world is kind of watching what's going on in the U.S., but then also kind of what other people are thinking and sort of trying to understand points of view that might not come to us as intuitively as one that, that comes from the U.S. I listen to the BBC during the day, and I'm always astonished at the things that are the newscasters are talking about and how little it hits our news here, our news cycle here. Um, are there other things that we could or should be doing to keep informed on the international news front to make us a little less we're the center of the universe kind of thing? That's interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, obviously we are fortunate in that we have available to us so many news sources, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the BBC, you know, is sort of a, an institution <laughs> which I believe indeed. has its own filter It has as its own well. bias. Yeah. And I think that it, it's sometimes interesting, if you can, to look at sort of local media. I think local media is, is really quite a fascinating microcosm of if there's any particular region, whatever, that you're interested in. I mean, sometimes these media censored, but a lot is available on the internet. So um, as I was saying, I grew up in Pakistan. So for me now, it's really easy to access newspapers over there. I mean, I can just look at them online, which is going to give me a much better sense of what's going on there than anything in the BBC or the New York Times will. So that's... Wow. Well, and it certainly gives you a perception of what they're thinking about the United States, if nothing else. That's sort of a Bette Midler line, you know. Enough about you, what do you think about, about or me? enough about me, what do you think, yeah, one of those. Um, we talked a little bit about earlier about the things that are implicit in law school, the things that we don't talk about, the things that aren't part of coursework. For instance, we don't train young women how to deal with sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. But what do you use most of your law school career and your law school skills in your day-to-day -day life as a lawyer? I mean, I think that the main thing is sort of the habit of rigor and analysis, mm -hmm. uh, which is you know something that you learn in law school 
uh, and I think refined through your career, which is you know the ability to ask the hard questions of yourself, right? So that your argument is the sharpest it can be, and that you actually you know make the strongest case. And I think sort of related to that is sort of not to ignore the weaknesses in your own position because nobody's position is impermeable. There's no position that's a hundred percent right, right? So I think you're a much better lawyer, a much better advocate, a much better politician or a policy mm-hmm. person if you recognize what those weaknesses are and are able to to diffuse them in some way or the other. So I think realism is really important for people. Fanza, you know that that's actually just a good dose of uh, life lessons. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Maybe so. That's how to be a good leader, mm-hmm. is to recognize our failures and to recognize our weaknesses, I think. Um, yeah, and I think for young lawyers, it's particularly difficult. Um, yeah. I feel that when I see, you know, I, I see a lot of lawyers coming through, and I think, you know, it's it's very, particularly if in an advocacy position where you, you know, you're passionate about what you do, you're passionate about your cause, you want to be strong in, in, in making your case, you know, but sometimes you got to be a little bit less strong than you think you need to be in order to make your case. Mm-hmm. And to recognize the little dents that, that might be in your case. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It doesn't mean you won't win, but you're more right. likely to win if you know where your, your weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. Do you call them out? Do you speak to them? I do. I often do. I'm like, you know, your take on this is wishful thinking uh-huh. <laughs> uh, because, you know, that's, yeah, sure, maybe legally under this theory you might be right, but there's all these other things. and That's a beautiful gift, I think, for uh, human beings to understand generally, not just lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, points on that one. I typically enter conversations with a, uh, a very simple question. Think back to your walking through the courtyard, entering as a law student. What advice would you give your 1L self? I think I'd tell my 1L self that law school is a time of opportunity and exploration. You get to meet lots of different kinds of people, uh, a range that you might not, again, experience in your life. Uh, You have the uh, opportunity to go to all kinds of events and lectures and clinics and do all these different things. Again, something that you're not necessarily going to have the time to do later on in life. And so, you know, I would encourage everyone to take advantage of all of these different opportunities um, and really sort of explore what it is that that you want to do with your life. It's really hard to luxuriate in law school when you're stressed, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so now I've put you back into this 1L mode. what would that law student think of you now? Well, it's hard for me to know that, uh, but I, I think here's what I would hope they would think of me, which is that I hope they would would look at the things that I've done and see both that it's possible to do lots of different things with the law, because while I, I've been in the public sector for a long time, I've done various different pieces of it. Uh, You know, the international criminal law is very different from arms control and is very different from doing national security law in the U.S., even though they may sound vaguely similar. Um, And I think that if you are a person who's interested in being engaged in how we shape this country going forward, I think the law and law school is an excellent tool. Mm -hmm. Faisal, I got to tell you, I'm really glad in these unsettled times that you and people like you are doing the work that you're doing. 
Thank you for talking to me today. My pleasure. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash womensleadership. leadership.